If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. As Benjamin Franklin once wrote, death and taxes might be the only certainties in life. But the ways in which the dead are buried, mourned and remembered is constantly changing. In her book, Rites of Passage, Death and Mourning in Victorian Britain, Judith Flanders explores how our 19th century ancestors felt about these weighty subjects. She spoke to Rebecca Franks about the elaborate etiquette of mourning the now-forgotten roles of funeral mutes and feathermen, and the disordered grief of Queen Victoria. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me. We're here to talk about the topic of death and mourning in Victorian Britain and death and mourning subjects actually that we don't necessarily have everyday conversations about in the 21st century. I wondered if that could be our starting point. How different was the Victorian view of death? to our modern conception of it today? I think the main difference was it was part of daily life. It wasn't tucked away neatly in hospitals where, you know, you go in and visit for an hour, but you don't see all the day-to-day stuff. You don't see people die. I mean, many people go happily through their whole lives without ever seeing a dead person which is simply not possible in the 19th century. Hospitals were very limited in the kind of 
diseases or illnesses they cared for. They were very specifically for certain things only. And if you could afford it, you were looked after at home. Hospitals were a place of last resort for people who were too poor, too desperate. So everybody saw death, whether it was, you know, your siblings and infant death, of course, was vastly more common than we know today. But it was also simply due to the vagaries of population. There were more young people than there were old people. Infant death was a much, much larger percentage of death than death of old age. And in your book, you take the reader through the process of dying and death, the the rites and the rituals from the deathbed to funerals to mourning. But the story actually begins with the sickbed. What would it have been like to be sick in Victorian Britain? Well, one of the things that we've forgotten with the huge advances of medical science in the 20th century is that you could be dying ongoing process for a very long time, for years potentially. Whereas now we think of it as you're well, you're ill, you're dead. Those are three stages and they're all relatively swiftly followed one on the other. Whereas in the pre-antibiotic, pre-medical science age, you could say have scarlet fever as a child and recover from it, except that before antibiotics, scarlet fever badly damaged people's hearts. So 40 years later, you could die, having been very ill often all the way through those 40 years. Or you could be diagnosed with tuberculosis. There was basically no cure for tuberculosis. Some people recovered, but that was fortuitous. It wasn't a cure. So you knew you were going to die, but it might take years. So this idea of dying being a often, I'm sorry, this sounds unkind, but a long-term project is something that we've lost sight of. And how are people like that, I mean, I think the word invalid often comes up, but how were they viewed, how were they treated by society, these people with long-term illnesses in the process of dying over years? It's very complicated because without hospitals, without doctors who could really do very much, you basically had an ecosystem where the family was the caregiver. And most of what we read in fiction is by and for the middle classes, the prosperous middle classes. So we read about families where there is a number of women, always women, who do not have jobs, who do not work outside the house, and therefore can devote their time to nursing. In turn, those women have servants. They have home help of various sorts, greater or lesser numbers, depending on their economic circumstances. So those women themselves don't do the dirty work of caring for the sick. You know, if you've got tuberculosis and you're constantly spitting up mucus, these women happily are not clearing away, 
you know, bowls filled with mucus or later blood. But as you move down the social scale, which we read about far less because novels on the whole don't depict them, if, for example, the breadwinner is sick, the man of the house or the person who brings in the most income, and you're spending money on food, the people can't go to work because they're looking after this person, who then dies... You've spent all your savings on looking after them, and then you have no money, even possibly to bury them. So really, illness is devastating for the entire family. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. In your book, you describe the Victorian era as the century of epidemics, you know, with cholera, smallpox, scarlet fever, we've just mentioned typhus, typhoid and so forth, all sweeping through. How did these kind of deadly threats shape people's attitudes towards their lives? Well, cholera is the first big epidemic that sweeps through in the 19th century. It arises in Southeast Asia. It comes via Russia. And so people saw it coming. They knew it was coming. This disease no one had ever seen before. And finally, it arrives in Britain in 1831 and gathers force finally in 1832. And the terrifying thing about cholera is that before intravenous hydration and oral rehydration, which are basically what you do for cholera now, you died of dehydration. And you could die less than 24 hours after the first symptom. So it was this terrifying illness. They didn't know where it came from, how you caught it, and the speed with which it killed was terrifying. You know, now we often think of death as something that will hopefully will only come to us in our later years, but obviously the 19th century mortality was much more common among children. How did that impact society? Well, it's very interesting because for many years there was this theory amongst historians who one can only imagine had never lost a child or knew anyone who had lost a child, that because children died so frequently and so young, their parents didn't care about them, that they did not invest emotion 
into these very small lives that might soon be lost. And I think that if you actually read the few scraps we have of the working classes and their response to the death of their children, this is so evidently not true. While it's also so evidently so silly. I mean, it's just absurd. We see silence. We see parents reusing the same names again and again of children who had died for the newer children who are born. And previously, this has been interpreted as simply not caring. But it seems to me so obvious that particularly for the most impoverished in a society, particularly in the earlier 19th century, where permanent gravestones were not common amongst the poor, this is a memorial. This is the only way they can memorialize their lost children, who they loved because people do love their babies. We don't actually have to be terribly smart to know that. And so what you see is very often a silence because they couldn't bear to talk about it. There is a very good diary of a clergyman who lived in the Welsh marches. And he worked frequently among the working class in his district. And he records often these mothers who have lost their children. And it is so touching and so moving. And they're so stoical in their grief. Every woman they know has lost a child. And yet... The grief isn't less. There's one woman who says of another, of a friend, she had children, but they didn't stay. It's as though they came into a room and then left again. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. I mean, it strikes me that there must have been a huge amount of grief for people to process as, as a really common part of life. Yes, and I think that because everybody endured it, doesn't make it easier. Then we might then turn to the funeral itself. What was the, the social role really of the funeral then in the Victorian period? Well, I think the Victorian period funeral doesn't break down very easily in one thing because what you get through the century is this crescendo to about mid-century from not simple funerals, but many were simple, to this sort of orgy of display and elaboration and wild numbers of accoutrement and display more generally. And then in 1852 was the funeral of the Duke of Wellington, which was without any argument the height of extraordinary over-elaboration. I mean, there were more than 10,000 people in the funeral procession. They had this elaborate funeral car with the coffin on top. The sort of bits that supported it had to be hinged so that it could fit under Temple Bar. And then a whole regiment of soldiers had to 
march behind with ropes tied around their waists because it was so heavy that when it went downhill, they were in effect the brakes. It was wild. It was totally crazy. And it revolted a lot of people. So you get from that 1852 moment, a diminuendo into what was called burial reform or funeral reform, and things became much less elaborate. And was there a kind of a moral aspect to that almost? Well, both were moral in a way, because it was considered initially a sign of respect for the person who had died. And very originally, the elaborate heraldic funerals of the aristocracy had been precisely not moral but societal. What they were doing, their function, was to display not the character of the person who died but their social position. And also through the what was known as the chief mourner, which was the heir of the person who had died, So not a wife or daughter, but the person who was taking his place in society. It was to demonstrate that the status quo was being preserved. So you had the funeral presented as not a character thing, but as a status performance. And then gradually over the 19th century, it becomes more about the person I mean, fascinatingly, Dickens at one point does not go to the funeral of a close relative, but one he did not know well, saying that he would not go to the funeral of somebody he did not know well and love. So by the time he's writing, it's not about the family. It's not about support for those who loved this person. As far as Dickens is concerned, it's old style. It's only about the person who's dead. And you mentioned there, I mean, obviously it changes over the century and it's going to be different for different classes within society. But are there elements that you could say are kind of the conventional or or that make up the conventions for a funeral in this time? The idea of a funeral, if you could afford it, was very much a thing of display. So you had a number of... In effect, characters, people who were provided by the undertaker, who, in effect, performed. So you would have funeral mutes. They stood at the door of the house from which the coffin would leave to go to the funeral. And they were sort of swathed in these black crepe. Crepe was a a mourning fabric. It was black and very unshiny. So it was only used for funerals or mourning wear. And they would have these huge crepe bands swathed around their hats, which hung all the way down past their waists. And they would hold what were called wands, which were basically sticks, which had more swathed crepe on it. And they would just stand outside. That was their function. And then you would have something called a feather man. And he would have a tray with, unsurprisingly, perhaps feathers on it, black ostrich plumes, which again were to represent grief. And then there were plumes on the horses, which pulled the hearse. And then for the more prosperous, you had this very odd custom, which is that the family and the mourners would follow the hearse as we know it. But then many 
acquaintances and people you knew would not themselves go to the funeral, but they would send their carriage. Now, having a carriage means you are effectively very rich. So this is only the very top level of society. But you would have this line of empty carriages and how many carriages followed the procession was a sign of your status and your position in society. So that is the ideal that people were aiming at. But we have other descriptions, I mean, heartbreaking descriptions. One woman was writing to a friend, and she was just walking through the streets, and she saw a couple, a man and a wife and their small child. And the man was carrying a child's coffin on his shoulder. So they not only couldn't afford the plumes and the horses and all of that, but they couldn't afford, you know, a hand cart to put the coffin on. And what she describes, which I found so touching, was the coffin was in a prosperous funeral covered with a pall, a velvet black and white cloth. And this little family who couldn't afford a hand cart They had wrapped the coffin in the woman's shawl. So this was the token of belonging to a community where niceties were observed. They did what they could. Was there a sense that you could end up having to spend money that you might not have that money? And there's obviously a whole industry, really, a commercial industry that grows up around grief around funerals, around mourning. How did people react to that? How did that feel to them? Well, this is part of the reason that is put forward for funeral reform, people spending money on funerals that they can't afford. And you see in magazine articles or in advice books that are telling the new widow what they should be doing. I mean, it's pretty clear to see that A widow's place is in the wrong. Whatever she does is going to be wrong. But at one and the same time, she is supposed to oversee a funeral for her husband that reinforces his status and place in the world in order to preserve it for their son. At the same time, she is not supposed to spend so much money that she is damaging the prospects of her children. She is supposed to go into full mourning. All her clothes are supposed to be changed to black clothes. But she is not supposed to spend too much money. She should not look too dowdy. At the same time, she should not look attractive because what was she thinking? It is remarkable how many ways you could be wrong as a widow. And I guess that's very caught up with the whole area of gender and women's roles in society. Of course. I mean, until the 1880s and the marriage acts, married women had no legal status. They were an appendage of their husband. So the only women who had an ability to say, sign a contract, go into debt, do anything legal, were either single women or widowed women or unmarried of any sort. So these women were kind of loose cannons. It was a little bit scary. I mean, there's a wonderful description in a novel by Trollope 
of a new widow who is too attractive and too rich and was married too young to an older husband. And of course, it's fascinating if you try and read it the other way. I mean, there's nothing that condemns him for marrying a woman so much younger, only for her for marrying a man so much older. And Trollope keeps using the word uncontrolled about her. And he uses it about her emotions, that she is uncontrolled in her emotion. But really what he means is no one is controlling her. It's scary. So were there a lot of rules and customs with their ideas around sort of the etiquette then of, of how you should mourn what you should be doing at that point? Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's so fascinating is because society was relatively fluid. You know, if you had enough money, you could buy your way up the social scale. If you lost money, you moved down the social scale. Because of this, there are many, many, many magazine articles and books that instruct those who have moved into a new status how they should behave. So in terms of death, there are long lists you can find of what mourning clothes one should wear for the death of a husband or the death of the parents of one's husbands, for the death of one's brother-in-law's parents, for the death of one's sister's niece's nephew. The whole thing is laid out. And of course, the fascinating part is they're all different. No one says the same thing. But basically, if your husband died, that was the essential one. You were supposed to wear full mourning for a year. And then after that, you gradually moved into what was known as half mourning, which were colors like gray and lavender. And then gradually, you could move into brighter colors if you so chose. But the permutations within this are enormous. I mean, how much crepe, this, this very ugly black fabric you had to wear, and whether you could show a little bit of white at your collar or not, and the rules were extraordinary. And then there were rules for everybody else in society. And again, we are talking now about the leisured classes. If you suffered a loss, if your husband died, you were not basically supposed to go out except for church for a year. Now, we know this did not happen. This was not possible for the bulk of the population. There were people who had to work. There were people who had to go out for all sorts of reasons. But this was what was supposed to happen. And the only visitors you were supposed to have for that year were your close family. Again, does this happen? No. So like most things in life, like us, there's what you're supposed to do. And then there's what we know really everybody does do. And how different do you think those are? Well, I was very interested sort of reading diaries and letters about mourning clothes, because this was the most obvious expression of loss, particularly for women. Men on the whole, like everything else, got away with murder. Men by the end were wearing a black armband for a few weeks and that was it, whereas these poor women were in black crepe for a year. But when you actually read the letters, I mean, many did not get new clothes, but had their old ones died because that was what they could afford. But even those of high social status with money would say things like, well, you know, I'm not getting a new cloak. Those are expensive. 
you know, I'll put some black braid on this one. It'll be fine. Or they would wear their normal clothes at home. And then if they went out, they would have one black dress, which they wore out. And then further down the social scale, again, like the couple with the shawl-wrapped coffin, people would make gestures toward what they could not afford. So they might buy a black ribbon for their hat. They couldn't afford the rest of it. But they wanted to show that they wouldn't have phrased it this way, but it was an indication they were part of society, they understood the norms of society, and they wanted to belong. I was struck as well when you're discussing mourning and the dress and everything that comes with that process. There were people who did things like mourning jewellery and hair jewellery. I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that because it seems quite kind of fascinating to us now, I think, in in the 21st century. And more than a little creepy. Hair jewellery was a big thing. What happened would be that people would, in life as well, I mean, this, this was not only a deaf thing, cut off locks of their hair and give them to their beloved or their siblings or their children or whoever. The trouble with hair as keepsakes is after a while it becomes a little difficult to identify. And so one of the things that people did was it would get put into pieces of jewellery, often a locket or the back of a bracelet or a ring. And It would go to a special hair jeweler, which was a thing you can find ads for it. And what they would do is they would plait the hair or twist it or tie it in some way so that it sort of made a kind of textured display object. And it would become the background. And you could see this nice sort of plaited piece of texture hair. And so these were very common. And when I say people collected them, I don't mean that they sort of, they weren't like baseball cards, you didn't trade them. It was that, you know, your father died, so you had a ring with his hair, and then your mother died, so you would get a locket, and then your sister. And so people had many of these things. So there was a whole industry And there were also other things that you would have. You might have a mourning ring, which would be usually in black enamel or something like that. And it would have the initials of the person who died and perhaps their death date. And again, these were memorial tokens and they were passed on. So there was a constant sort of movement of these pieces, which were memory pieces. You mentioned right at the beginning, actually, that, you know, often, especially in the working class, people, when they died, they might not have had gravestones. Could you tell me about gravestones? And because that for now, that's for us, that's like the very obvious memorial, isn't it, for a person who's died? Well, one of the most astonishing things to me was to realise that until about the 17th century, gravestones were not the norm. Coffins were not the norm. People were buried without coffins in a churchyard. There was no permanent marker made. And after X number of years, when more space was needed, the remains, which were minimal with no coffin, were moved to make way for other people. And this was normal. 
the markers were mostly in churches, were mostly for the aristocracy, and it was simply not a normal thing. And gradually, from the 17th century on, this becomes more and more the norm until by the 19th century, you have it being desired by the bulk of society. Not everybody could have one, but it becomes the norm. And then, of course, you begin to run into the problem of space, where people expect that space to be theirs permanently. And what's fascinating is you see how this has become the norm. Very often, the working classes, particularly if, as I said, they had suffered through a long illness, the family savings resources were completely spent on the illness, they might not have the money for a grave, much less a gravestone. So we do have records, not uncommonly, that the person would be buried in the sort of mass parish area where those who could not afford their own graves were buried at the expense of the parish. And then later on, there would be exhumation orders made. The family would go to the council or the parish and say, okay, we now have the money to buy a grave. So, you know, please, could we have cousin Genevieve back again? And she would be buried. And so it's fascinating to see how even when resources are very scant, families, again, and it goes again to counter this argument that people did not care about their children, you know, they would save up or go to family and borrow money in order to get the money to bury their children in the way that they felt showed them the respect that was due. One other aspect that I was struck by was with, I mean, with various technological developments that were happening during that century, you know, the telephone, cameras, uh, sort of the advent of photography. I mean, photography in particular brought around this idea of taking photos of people either in their last days or on their deathbed, which to us again can seem creepy <laughs> or un unexpected, but I presume it was taken in a very different spirit at the time. Well, it was creepy and unexpected, but that's because we have all lived a lifetime of having our pictures taken. So when, particularly in the early days of photography, very often there would be no photograph. So if you had to have a photograph of the person taken on their deathbed, or occasionally, not often, but occasionally after death, then you would do that because that was all there was. If you had to save up to have a photograph taken, you know, and your child died at two or three, you almost certainly would not have a photograph of them. Particularly in the early days of photography when long exposure times meant that it was almost impossible to take a photograph of a very young child because they couldn't sit still for long enough. So there would be no image. There's one photograph that a historian found that is just heartbreaking. It's a photograph of a little straw hat. 
and it's got a name and some dates on a band around it. And on the back, it says that this child died aged five. And because his parents had no photograph of him, they had a photograph taken of his hat. The final aspect I'd like to talk about, and I don't think we could not talk about Queen Victoria. (laughs) Maybe we'll begin, actually, in 1861 when her husband, Albert, died at this young age of 42, when she was also 42. How did she mourn her husband? Ostentatiously. I think the two most important things to say about Victoria and her mourning were that today, I think many people think that it was the norm, and many people think that the rest of society approved of her mourning. Neither of those things are true. I think it is absolutely beyond any doubt. I actually talked to a specialist in grief and mourning that Victoria suffered from what was, what is today called disordered mourning or grief, that she was psychologically destroyed by this death. If you go through today's modern psychiatric manual for disordered grieving, she ticks every single box. All of the clues that are in place that you might suffer from this are hers. The death of her parents, her age, the fact that she had no support of her coevals, and on and on and on. There is no question that for the first couple of years, her doctors were seriously worried about her. They thought, you know, she... I mean, she did have a breakdown. They didn't quite say they thought she was insane, but she basically was awfully close to it. Because of her social position, she was able to impose her own requirements on everyone around her. I found a book written by one of the ladies of her household, Anonymous, in the 1890s, so more than 30 years after Albert's death, where she said that Victoria would not allow the young women of the household to wear lavender because she thought lavender was too close to pink and pink is too cheerful. There's a very interesting letter from Mrs. Oliphant, who was a novelist of the period, whose husband died very young, and then she watched all her children die over her lifetime. And she says about Victoria and her mourning, she said, she's got a happy, loving family, She doesn't have to work, which Mrs. Oliphant did. She wrote novels in order to keep her surviving children fed. She said, basically, she said, what's she got to be so fussed about? She's lucky. So there was this perception at the time that Victoria's mourning was neither normal nor really acceptable's the wrong word, but... It wasn't, people felt it wasn't right. And certainly within government, within her own household, people felt absolutely that she used it for the next three decades, four decades, as a way of doing what she wanted to do and not doing what she didn't want to do. 
which included not really performing the public functions that she should have been performing. She had never liked doing the state duties. And she basically thought, OK, I'm not going to. And in private... She was doing very extreme things. You know, again, there was this discussion of her photographing and cataloguing everything in their home so that it could be kind of frozen in time. She had this very strange fixation on things. She liked things. And over the years after Albert's death, certainly anything that he had done or anything that he had touched could not be touched. And anything that was fragile. So if he had overseen the decor of a room, it was photographed, it was catalogued, everything had to be kept exactly the way it was. But also things like curtains and carpets and upholstery, which ultimately would fade and wear, they had duplicates made. So that when the curtains faded, they could be replaced with the identical curtains. Nothing could be altered, even if it was being altered. When Victoria herself died in 1901, at the age of 81, what was the public reaction at that point? I think by then the public, I mean, there was this idea of the old queen, you know, that she had been there since anyone could remember. But at the same time, there was also the thought that, you know, it was time. And one of the things that amused me at the coronation last year, watching it, when we were told about how antique the entire ceremony was, basically Victoria came to the throne in 1837, coronation's 1838, she dies in 1901, the next coronation is 1902. No one could remember what had been done in 1830. I mean, everyone was long dead. No one had any idea. So Basically, in 1902, everything is made up. That was historian Judith Flanders, whose book, Rites of Passage, Death and Mourning in Victorian Britain, is published by Picador. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.